Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Chris Garcia. And he thought it was very noble of me to be this young, hardworking kid that worked at a dry cleaner for minimum wage. And I thought it was really cool that I was going to fuck a rich white guy's daughter. (laughs) That and more. But before that, I want to give a little shout out to two of our latest Patreon patrons, Patrick Young and Ross LaFontaine. Thank you so much, guys. We always give a big shout out to someone when they give $25 or more per month to us over at Patreon. If you haven't checked it out yet, we have so many bonus stories there. I'm due to do a new check-in over there. Uh, But yeah, we have a lot of bonus content, and it means so, so much to us to have the fans helping us keep this running, because this gigantic machine we're running here, we have almost 20 or so people that work for us, we have the live shows we have the podcasts we have the workshops we have the touring it's a lot and we really really do need the financial assistance of our fans to keep it going as well as we can that is all at patreon.com slash risk and like i said there's ad free episodes there for example every week you get the new episode with stuff like this what i'm saying right now cut out so Check it out, patreon.com slash risk. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Frank Zappa behind me now. And we just, oh, we didn't just hear anything. (laughs) 
we just heard me doing some advertisements at the top of the show. How'd you like that? We are calling this week's episode Unfamiliar Territory. These are three stories recorded in three very different cities. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Steph Riley. She told her story the very first time Risk did a live show in Indianapolis. But before that, a little something from Milwaukee. Ryan Webster was so much fun when he started off our Milwaukee show just a couple weeks ago. And you can find him on Facebook at Ryan Webster Milwaukee. (laughs) Here he is now. This is Ryan Webster with a story we call Exposure. Right after I graduated from college in 2004, I went on this East Coast road trip with my two good friends, Jeff and Craig. We piled into Jeff's bright red 1988 Pontiac Grand Am. We listened to Rusted Root for 14 consecutive hours, (laughs) and we ended up in New York City. Our first stop was at Jeff's friend's place. It was this tiny Manhattan studio apartment where we were planning to crash on the hardwood floor. So we met Jeff's friend, and he was gay, and he says to us, hey guys, I just discovered this great new gay bar. Do you guys want to check it out? I was like, ah, because at that point in my life, I really didn't want to be associated with anything gay. I went to an all-boys Catholic high school, Marquette High School. Okay, you're familiar. So you know, yeah, so you know everyone made fun of us and said that we were gay. You're so gay, man. You're not cool. So we were always doing whatever we could to just prove that we were straight. And the other thing was that growing up, I wanted to be like my dad. He's the kind of guy, he could be easily confused with Bruce Willis. He's real strong and muscular. He's a carpenter, so he can fix anything. Uh, He drives a big truck. Some of his favorite phrases growing up were, no whining, no crying, and don't be a pansy. So I just, I just developed this association of masculinity with being macho and being unafraid and being straight. But here we were in New York City. We're on this road trip. We're feeling kind of adventurous. So we went for it. Three straight guys and a gay guy walk into a gay bar. <laughs> and... It's going fine. We're having fun. Uh, it was a little different than like the bars I was used to. It was a little more upscale, I guess. It, it didn't have like pool tables or dartboards. It had uh, you know these like elaborate glass light fixtures and um, these like smooth, curved, bright blue couches. Uh, one bathroom for men and women. We thought that was kind of cool. 
so then this show starts. There's a stage. This middle-aged guy, he's wearing a bow tie. He comes up on stage. He seems like he's kind of like the MC. He's like, hey, is anybody here from out of town? And for some reason, my hand just <laughs> shot up like a rocket. It was a huge mistake. And he goes, yeah, where are you from? I was like, Wisconsin. He's like, great, come on up here on stage. And I just felt this huge rush of anxiety fill my whole body and my heart starts pounding. So I guess you should know I'm 37 years old now. I know, I, I look younger than that. Thank you, thank you. I was 23 at the time. For the majority of my life, this has been my deepest fear. Standing on a stage in the spotlight being recorded. I don't know, I've always had these thoughts in my head like, what are people going to think about me? How are people going to judge me? Are people going to make fun of me for this? So I've always just had this fear of being seen by people, of sharing myself, of being my real self. When I was a kid, my, my dad was like the first guy ever to get a camcorder. I don't know if you guys remember those back in the 80s, like this big old box that you put on your shoulder. It's got like a full-size VHS tape on the inside. He used to videotape everything. And whenever the camera panned over to me at family parties, I just, I just like poop my pants, like I just, or hid behind the couch or whatever, like, I felt like whatever I said or did was just going to be watched and laughed at for years to come. So I didn't say much for 22 years. I just kept building this shell around myself. I couldn't risk being unique or creative because I was afraid I was going to get made fun of. There was this one time in high school I was hanging out with some kids from the jazz band. We were singing that song from Snoopy. So we're, yeah, we, yeah, we were cool, don't worry. So we're, we're singing that song, and it gets to that part, it kind of builds up, and I, I, I just let loose. I was like, and then I stop and I look around, and it's like silent. And everybody's looking at me, and this one kid goes, Dude, whoa, that was weird. I was like, what? He's like, oh, I just, I just never seen you get so excited before. You usually just sit there and don't say anything. Like, it wasn't like a super traumatic thing, but I just feel like I had all these experiences like, man, there's, like, there's something wrong with me. I wished I knew what it was and how I could bury it so no one could see it. Actually, I didn't even realize that I had these insecurities till towards the end of college. I read the book The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama. It helped me to ask myself the question, why am I terrified to raise my hand and participate in my classes? And I got a little inspired. I wanted to overcome my fears, so I signed up for this public speaking class. Over the course of that semester, I had to give a bunch of speeches, and every one of them I was terrified for days and weeks beforehand, and maybe for like the first half of the speech. 
But later in the speech and kind of over the course of the semester, I got, I got a little more comfortable. Like, I felt good about what I had done in that class. So on that night in New York City, as I'm approaching the stage, my heart pounding, I remember, okay, public speaking class. This is just like public speaking class. I can do this. I'm just going to get up there. The MC is going to ask me some questions about Wisconsin. All I'll have to do is answer the questions. So I get up there, and the MC brings up this other guy on stage, Mark from Boston. He's short, white guy, kind of skinny. He kind of looks like me, actually. <laughs> and, and then the MC goes, Okay, guys, take off your shirts. It's time for the whipped cream show. I was like, oh, my God. How do I get out of this? I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what do I do? What do I do? But it happened so fast. He just said that, and the crowd got excited. The crowd goes, yeah. And this guy, Mark, here, he's excited. He goes, yeah, and he rips his shirt off. And I'm thinking, hell no. But the words that came out were, yeah, and I, and I ripped my shirt off. And I'm standing on this stage with no shirt on. And for those of you listening to the podcast, I'm definitely standing on this stage right now with no shirt on. (laughs) And believe me, despite your applause, it feels just as awkward now as it did back then. Any sense of confidence I had gained from public speaking class, public speaking, obliterated. Now, I just, I'm way over my head here. And then the MC has Mark sit down in this chair, and he takes out some whipped cream, and he takes it, and he sprays some on Mark's shoulders and chest and then he sprays some on his back and on his arms and all over his face and Mark is just covered with whipped cream and then he goes hey Ryan you're gonna do a sexy dance and lick off all the whipped cream I was like, oh my God, again, how do I get out of this? I'm thinking like, okay, maybe I'll just say like, like guys, I'm so sore. Like I just, I just came here to hang out with my friends. I'm, I'm not actually gay. I don't, I don't want to lick whipped cream off of Mark's body. But, but again, it it happened so fast. He just said that. And the crowd goes, yeah. And Mark's here. He goes, yeah. And I was just like, 
okay. <laughs> and I just gathered up all my courage and I started dancing. And Mark's here and I'm just, I'm grinding. I'm grinding up on Mark and I'm licking the whipped cream. I'm licking it and the sweetness of the whipped cream is mixing in my mouth with the flavor of Mark's aftershave. And the the saltiness of his back sweat. <laughs> but I just keep dancing and I I start working the crowd a little bit. I don't I don't even know. I don't know what I was doing. I was not myself. I was like this other character that had stretched so far outside of myself. I don't even know who I was or what was happening. But I made it through. I danced to the end of that song. I licked all the whipped cream off of Mark's body. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. In the end, there was this whipped cream kiss. Yep, I did that too. And I came off the stage and the crowd was going wild. And I was... I was released from the stage and I picked up my shirt and I sat back down and my friends, they just kind of looked at me. For those of you listening to the podcast, I just put my shirt back on so you can open your eyes now. Yeah, my friends, they just kind of looked at me like, whoa. There were no high fives. There were not even any words. Jeff just looked at me, his face said, dude, what the hell were you thinking? And Craig's face said, dude, I cannot wait to get home and tell the rest of our friends about this. And then this guy came up to us, and he's like, Hey, guys, that was amazing. I got the whole thing on videotape. You guys want a copy? I was like, oh, oh my God. That was before cell phone cameras, even. This guy got the whole thing on a camcorder. (laughs) Yep, just like my dad. (laughs) My friends were super excited to get this tape. I was like, guys... I will not be friends with you if you take this tape. For some reason, I just had this fear that, like, if I ever ran for political office, this tape of me licking whipped cream was going to surface. So I'm off stage now. I'm kind of, like, snapping back into my normal self. I felt ashamed and embarrassed. I was like, man, like, what did I just do? Like, that wasn't manly. That wasn't cool. I'm going to get made fun of for a lifetime for this. I was like, you know, I, every time I try to step out of my shell, like, I make a fool of myself. And I really, I, I wanted to go back into my shell and hopefully people wouldn't notice that I'm not normal. And that's how I felt about this story for most of the last 15 years. I've been embarrassed and, and I wanted to hide it. But actually, like, 
working on my fear and opening myself up is kind of like the main thing that I've been working on for the last 15 years. I've come a long way. Uh, I became a teacher and I even became an actor and a, and a musician and a storyteller and doing these things that I never imagined that I'd be doing. So it was a couple of years ago that I was trying to brainstorm a story for a story slam. And I asked myself, what story am I most afraid of telling? <laughs> and when this story came to mind, I was like, wow, I'm actually willing to tell this story. And I didn't feel like I have to hide it anymore. And I also don't feel like being a man means being tough and macho anymore. I, you know, I've become my own person. I can let my dad be my dad, and I can let my friends be my friends, and, and I can be me. For me, being a man means being open and vulnerable. Uh, it means developing courage by risking being afraid, taking the challenges that life throws at me and not resisting them, but uh, just saying yes to them and using those as opportunities to grow. So now I can finally say I'm proud and I'm glad that I went to that gay bar. And I'm glad that I went on stage and took my shirt off the first time. <laughs> and the second time. Okay, thanks. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm even glad I, I licked all that whipped cream. Thanks, everybody. I met my husband, Matt, seven years ago, and he was, hands down, the hottest guy I'd ever dated. And he was smart and funny and outgoing in all the ways that I'm not. For a long time, it didn't bother me that he was just a little lazy and boring in bed. And that sometimes I would have to take my mind someplace else just to get off. It's not that he wasn't interested in sex, because he was. He was insatiable. It's just that it was all about him. There was nothing in him that took pleasure in giving me pleasure. Over time, I got to the point where I was just never horny, and I didn't even feel like trying anymore. Which is weird, because at my base level... I am a really horny person. I mean, <laughs> before I met Matt, 
I'd built up a spank bank a mile deep, you know, full of people I could pull from when I needed to. Like my first love, Josh, who teased me with strawberry ice cream and fucked me under a pine tree at the city park in broad daylight. And this dude I just called the Russian, who I begged to shove it in my ass because his uncircumcised cock was just so big and so good, I needed it in every orifice of my body. And Brad, oh, Brad. And that time he spanked and fingered me at the same time and then punished me for coming without his permission. And I missed that old adventurous sex life I had, you know, and these men who got off on getting me off. And I'd like to tell you that I had some crazy college roommate who opened the door to my sexual awakening, but that's not how it happened for me. It was my grandfather. Now wait, before you start to think this is going to be one of those gut-wrenching molestation stories... Let me explain. When I was a baby, my parents got divorced, and they were really young and really broke. So my Depression-era grandparents raised me. And by the time I came into their lives, there was no warmth left between them. I mean, I never saw them touch. And they were very different people. You know, Grandma was one of seven born in a poor Appalachian family, and Grandpa was the youngest son of a wealthy automobile family. And Grandma was tough and proud and loved fashion. And Grandpa was an engineer and an intellectual who was always reading like seven books at any given time. But despite all of their differences, they had one thing in common. They really loved me. And over the years, I just took on more and more of the household responsibilities until eventually, in my 20s, I became something like their nurse. But for a long time, when I was a young kid, Grandma would fill my weekends with these household projects. And on this particular weekend, she decided that I was going to clean out all the closets in the house. Now, I was 11 years old at the time. I was gawky and awkward and just starting to figure things out in life. And I just wanted to get through this closet project as quickly as I could so I could get on with my weekend. So I uh, go to her and I say, Grandma, I'm done. And she says, no, honey, I need you to clean out your grandpa's closet. Now, Grandpa had gone into work that Saturday like he often did. And in retrospect, I know that if he'd been there, he would have kept me from doing and seeing what I was about to do and see. But he wasn't. (laughs) So I grabbed a couple of trash bags, and I went upstairs, and I went into his walk-in closet. And I started with the lower rung. And I spread apart his dress pants. And there on the floor, I see this line of shoes. But behind that, I see all these paper bags that are filled to the brim with things I've never seen before. So I reach in, and I pull one out, and I look inside. And it looks like there are a bunch of photo albums in there. And I'm like, oh, cool, you know? It's probably some old wedding pictures, some old family pictures. So I open it up, and inside, there's this woman... Drawn in pencil, semi-nude, with her wrists and her ankles bound behind her with rope and lifted up toward the ceiling. 
And her face is covered with this tight black mask, and you can't see anything except for her thick lips protruding out of it around this ball gag with a little bit of saliva running out of the corner of her mouth and down her chin. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I should not be seeing this. I've got to put this back and act like I never saw it. But that's not what I did at all. I just kept turning the pages, and the entire thing was filled with my grandfather's exquisite drawings of S&M bondage scenes. And thus began my early addiction to pornography. (laughs) Because it turned out that Grandpa's closet was a treasure trove of illicit material. A lot of it were these drawings, these beautiful little twisted pieces of art that came straight from his fantasies. But he also had these books that described in complicated detail the relationship between a slave and master and a giant video library. And I was a very dedicated student. I, I spent months getting acquainted with everything his collection had to offer, and years later keeping up with the new content that he'd continue to add. But at the same time, I'm turning into a badass, horny teenager. And I'm stealing grandma's cigarettes, and I'm sneaking out of the house, and I'm doing drugs, and I'm having sex, and breaking hearts, and having a ball. And then one day, I was in high school, I noticed that Grandpa had a new video in his collection. So I waited for him to be gone, and I snuck inside, and I grabbed the video, and I pop it in the VCR, and I sit back for what I think is going to be a really good session. (laughs) And it's a really low-quality recording, but I hear, oh my God, Becky, look at her butt. And then... There's Sir Mix-a-Lot on top of this giant foam mask with all these women dancing around him. And then my grandpa walks in the room behind me and says, Stephanie! And he steps between me and the TV and he shuts it off and he says, How dare you snoop through my things? Get out! And I do. And we never talk about it again. Except he clearly knows that I know about his collection at this point. And from that moment on, we have an unspoken understanding. I don't tell grandma about his weird porn and he doesn't tell grandma about my pot smoking and sneaking boys in and out of the house at night. Now it didn't take long for me to develop something of a bad reputation at school. And I'll never forget this one time in Spanish class. I was pretending to be asleep so the teacher wouldn't call on me and there are these two boys behind me and I hear them talking and one says to the other, Hey, man, would you hit that? And his friend says, I wouldn't touch that whore with a 10-foot pole. By the time I got to college, though, I was over that teenage porn star part of my life. And I was still living with my grandparents, but I was commuting back and forth to the local regional college campus. And I was really digging into the feminist writers. And it was making me look at this whole deal with my grandfather differently. And suddenly, that porn that just seemed like fun was beginning to feel like blatant misogyny. And this little seed of hatred and resentment started to grow inside me for him. And looking back on all of that sexual adventuring I did, you know, I really thought that I was just staking out my freedom and my independence, but now it felt like a sham. Like I'd been duped and objectified 
like the women in Grandpa's drawings. And the most confusing part of it all is that I knew my grandfather loved me and respected me. And I also knew that I was an equal partner in seeking out those sexual experiences with those guys in high school. You know, they weren't just my consensual sexual partners. A lot of them were my friends. And around that same time, I found this line in an essay by Albert Camus. I find misogyny vulgar and stupid. Almost every woman I've ever met has been my better, and yet, placing them so high, I've used them more often than I've served them. How does one make sense of this? And the juxtaposition of that statement by a man against the backdrop of all the feminist writing that I was taking in really captured the feelings I was having about my grandfather and about men in general at that time in my life. But while all that's swirling around up here, you know, Grandpa's starting to get really old and sick. And it was this one day in my freshman year of college, and I'd been taking Grandpa food upstairs for a few days, but he wasn't eating it, and he wasn't coming downstairs. And I finally say, Grandpa, we got to do something about this. And he says, no, I just need you to go to the pharmacy for me, Steph, and pick me up a couple things. And he hands me this list, and it says... KY Jelly and Preparation H. And I say, oh, Grandpa, I don't know if I can do this. And he says, no, just get me the stuff. I'll be fine. So I do, but it doesn't work. And the next day, I take him to the doctor, and he goes back into the office, and I'm there in the waiting room, and about 45 minutes later, this very uncomfortable-looking nurse walks out and asks me to follow her. And we go into this narrow hallway... And she says to me, with a straight face, no more than six inches away from my own, your grandfather has a ball lodged in his rectum, and we can't get it out. You're going to have to take him to the emergency room. And I say, okay, thank you very much. And I retrieve my grandfather, and we go to the emergency room, and we wait for two hours for a proctologist to show up, But eventually he emerges, this tiny little old man with this tiny little paper bag in his hand, and inside is the Nerf ball he'd shoved up his ass a week earlier. And I I know this is hilarious, right? I've told this story a thousand times to my good friends. But in that moment, I was just seething rage. And it's not so much I was mad about what he'd done to himself, as I was pissed off that I was the one taking responsibility for this shit. So by the time we get home and Grandpa goes upstairs with his ball and Grandma's there in the living room and she says, Staff, what was that all about? What happened? I just let her have it. And I say, well, Grandma, Grandpa had a ball stuck up his... Stop! Just stop. Don't say anything more. I continued to live with my grandparents throughout college and for a little while after because they needed me. And I felt trapped and overwhelmed, and it just felt like that was the way my life was always going to be. I couldn't see past that moment, those years of taking care of my grandparents. 
You know, but of course, then I graduated from college and I got my first teaching job. And by then, Grandpa was dying. He had Alzheimer's and he thought I was his dead older sister. And I remember during that time, I was reading uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road. And it was the last book that my grandfather ever bought and brought home. And he started it, but he couldn't finish it because he said it was too dark. But I just devoured it while I watched him slowly disappear. In the end, there was nothing left of the man who raised me. It was just skin and bones and hollow eyes. And when he finally died, it was a real mercy. But in my grief, I saw this window of opportunity. I left my job and my family and my hometown and everything I ever knew. And I moved just far enough away to figure out who I was, but just close enough to drive back and forth to take care of Grandma on the weekends. And it was so exhilarating, but also really exhausting, you know. After about three years, Grandma was dying. And it was Christmas Day, 2009, and that year she bought me this fancy purple velvet hat with a little flower on it. And I wore it that whole day. And we were just lounging around, and it was toward the end of the night, just watching Hallmark Channel or some shit. And she motions for me to come over to her, and I do. And I put my face down real close to hers, and she says, I'm not sure God intended for men and women to be monogamous. And that was the last thing she ever said to me. And I don't really know what she meant by that, but (laughs) I like to think she was trying to tell me that she had an inner life of her own that she didn't let anyone see, just like Grandpa did. And it's been about a decade now since they've both been gone, and I think I'm finally starting to understand how people end up like my grandparents. And we make these decisions that we think are good and right for us, and the accumulation of those decisions over time just sort of gather around us like an unruly vine until we're stuck and we can't remember how we got there. I know because that is exactly what happened to me. I turned around one day and noticed that my husband, Matt, didn't want to spend time with me anymore. And when I confronted him about it, He said it was about my ambition and my work, but I know it was about the sex and our lack of intimacy because we never talked about the real problems in our relationship. And I thought about it for a long time, and I decided if there's one thing I learned from my grandparents, it's that you can't make two people be happy with one another. So I mourned it for about a month or so, and I finally went ahead and did what my grandparents never felt free enough to do, I filed for divorce. I'm not saying it's the nicest way to go, but I feel good. In fact, I'm really horny again. And I don't know if it was that early exposure to grandpa's porn, or maybe it's just in my DNA, But in my mind, I'm already running through the scenes of my future sex life, and it is next-level hot. It took me almost 40 years to figure out that I'm the one in control of my life. And I get to decide, and I'm the one responsible for making it happen. 
I can be submissive and powerful. I can be dominant and vulnerable. I don't have to bag up and hide any part of myself. I just have to find other freaks like me to enjoy those things with. This is Risk. This is Pink Floyd behind me now. And we just heard from Steph Riley in Indianapolis. Before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Our final story on this week's episode is a real treat. This comes to us from comedian Chris Garcia, such a great comedian. He is based in Los Angeles. You can find him at chrisgarciacomedy.com. The last time Chris was on the show, it was our episode called Live from San Francisco, story called Still Very Much in Love, still one of my very favorites. And here he is again, once again, knocking it out of the park. And once again, it was at San Francisco Sketch Fest, only the one we did this past January. So without further ado, here he is now. This is Chris Garcia with a story we call Rattled by the Rush. So my parents are from Cuba. There's no Cuba? Yeah? The next mission district? (laughs) Um, My parents are from Cuba, and I grew up in Los Angeles, a neighborhood called Inglewood, which if you listen to hip-hop, you know is up to no good. 
It's a rough neighborhood. I grew up on the corner of Go Raiders and Fuck Haters. I went to a rough high school. Our mascot was Cypress Hill. And then one, I got in one little fight, and my mom got scared. And she sent me away to go to high school in Manhattan Beach, California. My parents lied about where we lived so I could go to a better high school in Manhattan Beach. Do you guys know Manhattan Beach at all? Okay, it's all flip-flops and Adam's apples. It's like a wealthy beach town. Like, uh, my high school had a, uh, my new high school had a beach volleyball team. It had a surf team. It really did. The most popular guy in my grade was named Brogan Mollenhoe. It's a real name. Brogan Mollenhoe, dude. First syllable of his name is bro. The last one is ho. Technically, his name is bros before hoes. So that's how much of a bro that guy was he ran for class president and his poster said brogan that's my slogan <laughs> and he won he ran unopposed <laughs> can't fuck with that slogan it is too good <laughs> it was a tough transition it was my sophomore year to make matters worse my father uh was out of a job and he was convinced it was because his english was not good enough So he enrolled in the English as a Second Language program, uh, adult ESL, at my new high school. During the day. When I went there. So it's just me, my dad, and a bunch of fucking brogans just walking around. What's up, hey Chris? What's up, Mr. Garcia? Schnarf? You know, it was rough. It was a rough situation. Going to school. Hey, Chris! Hey! Hey, stupid! Hey, stupid, you forgot your lunch. You can't forget your lunch, man. You're not one of these rich motherfuckers, okay? Don't forget where you come from. You come from Manhattan Beach. 1805567 Matthews Avenue, Manhattan Beach, California. So it was tough, and I was very uncomfortable, and I was like a wallflower, like I just, I was awkward, I kept my hat over my head, and my dad was very encouraging of me also. He was like, hey, I didn't come, I didn't come to the United States for nothing, man. I didn't float through shark infested waters on a hubcap for you to do nothing with your life. Go out, you're an American too, man. You can do it. You can do it. And so that helped me get off my ass, and so I enrolled in a bunch of clubs because I would thought my dad was right. Also, I got to hide from my dad uh, at lunch being in these clubs. So I, I joined the uh, Star Trek Club, uh, the Star Trek Next Generation Club. I did Model UN. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> Model UN. <laughs> Simulated debate. <laughs> the great laugh. Uh, so in Model UN... I get, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm going to do so. I'm excited. I get to share my uh, opinions on stuff. And, and uh, also I got to perform a little bit. It's a little bit like stand-up. And I started kind of growing into my own. In this class was my first ever high school crush. This beautiful girl who, I, you remember the first crush in high school where you're like, oh, this is what the love songs are about. <laughs> and you get chicken skin and you kind of walk the same direction they do at lunch. It's lightweight stocking or whatever. <laughs> but that was this girl and I was so in love, but she was rich and she was white 
And she was on the tennis team. She belonged to a country club. And I really felt like I had no chance at all. I felt like, a, like she was Kelly P- Kapowski. And I was like a lowly A.C. Slater. I was just like, we come from different worlds. I can never do this, lady, you know? I'm not, I'm not worthy of a beautiful white woman. But, but I, I started interacting with her, and it was cute, and I was being funny, and I would do bad magic tricks that would make her laugh. And uh, a high school dance came up, the winter formal, and I did not invite her. <laughs> I brought a uh, cardboard cutout of uh, Patrick Stewart. <laughs> Jean-Luc Picard that I stole from the Star Trek Next Generation Club and I put a ribbon in his hair and I took that to the dance and we took photos and it was really funny and people thought it was really funny and she loved it but she was like that is so funny but you could have asked me and I was like what? she said that and I just went will you be my girlfriend? (laughs) I just blurted it out like the dorkiest thing and she went she like made fun of me and then she said yes and I was like what this is crazy and so we started dating and she was so pretty and so nice and so cool that for a whole month I didn't even kiss her because I was like oh I don't know I don't know about I was just so just dumb you know I was hard the whole time but I did not kiss her or do anything about it so I was like, oh, okay. And then eventually we started holding hands. We'd go to the movies and make out a little bit. And we were straight up boyfriend. This unlikely, like, a boyfriend and girlfriend we, we dated. And about six months into it, she was like, I think we should take this to the next level. I think we should lose our virginities to each other. Yeah. So I, fu- I just fucking went for it. And she was like, not right now in my parents' basement with Frasier on in the background, dude. It needs to be special. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure, no problem. Yeah, totally, special, sounds good. I remember her telling me that the most comfortable bed that she had ever slept in was a bed at the Regent Beverly Wilshire Hotel, which is the hotel made famous by the movie Pretty Woman. I don't know why her and her family went on vacation 10 miles away from where we lived. But I was not interested in that fact. I did not need to know that answer. I called the Regent Beverly Wilshire. I'd say, I'd like a room for Garcia, please. They said, that will be $450. It's like, $450? This is where the class divide is very apparent. It's like, I don't have $450. My parents don't have $450. Let's fucking do it. So I uh, I resolved to take her to the Regent Beverly Wilshire. I hung up the phone, and the next day I got a job. I'd never had a job before. I didn't even have a bank account. (laughs) I got a job at a dry cleaner that was right by school. $4.75 an hour was the minimum wage at the time, and I worked there a bunch of times a week and on Saturday to save up the $450. It happened to be the dry cleaner where her... Uh, father, who was an executive at a car company, dropped off his suits. And he thought it was very noble of me to be this young, hardworking kid that worked at a dry cleaner for minimum wage. And I thought it was really cool that I was going to fuck a rich white guy's daughter. I was like, ooh. Ah. 
What'd you say? Extra starch? All right. Okay, big guy. So I worked there for several months, saving up the measly money that I was making, and I finally made over $450. And I told her, I was like, hey, so we're going to go away for a weekend. We're going to go away for one night. <laughs> and she's like, okay. And I was like, we're going to go camping. I wanted to be a surprise. I wanted to throw her off the scent. Told her we're going camping. I show up to her house in my mother's 1981 Toyota Corolla. Baby blue with a dark blue door. <laughs> she is ready to go camping. She's got a tank top on. She's got those pants that you could zip into shorts. She's got her Tevas ready to go. She's got like a Rosie the Riveter bandana around her head. Like we're going camping. I knew she was going to probably dress like we were going camping. So a week prior to that, I snuck into her room. I took her prom dress and I took it to the cleaners and I got it, uh, I got it cleaned and boxed up. It was a baby blue, roughly prom dress. Which... <laughs> Uh, what was I thinking? I was like, yeah, you know, every woman wants to lose her virginity dressed like Disney's Frozen. <laughs> so I had that in the trunk of the car. We get in the car, and I'm like, oh, oh, I'll just put the blind, I'll, I'll put her, like, handkerchief, I'll just put it, her bandana, I'll put it over her eyes. That way she has no idea where we're going. So we're driving, she's got the bandana over her eyes. We get to the Reg, uh, I call it the Reg now. <laughs> the Regent Beverly Wilshire Hotel, and it's got this palatial driveway. It's like a, a half circle, and there's a uh, valet, which I've never done before. Like, I don't know shit about valets. There's a security booth. I see other, like, straight up Rolls Royces and shit. You know, and I get anxious. I freak out. 50 feet before the booth, I just get out of the car and I go, I don't know. <laughs> Security sees this punk kid in this beater car. They run towards me and bang on the hood of the car. They see this young woman in shotgun. <laughs> Presumably in a hostage situation. And I'm like, oh, uh, it's, uh, amigo, no. Uh, there's like a Latino guy. I was like, amigo, uh, no te preocupes. Eh? Um, yo, tenemos reservaciones a quedarnos aquí. Y vamos a hacer chaca chaca. Por la primera vez. So, and the guy was like, okay, that's the American dream. Go for it, buddy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, we check into the region. We go upstairs. I, uh, like in Pretty Woman, I, well, I had had a friend that was in community college who was older who had a, you know, he was old enough to drink. Uh, he got us champagne because in Pretty Woman they have strawberries and champagne. So I wanted that to be ready, you know? So we got upstairs and uh, I opened up the prom dress and uh, she laughed at me. And then... Uh, <laughs> She's like, what the fuck is, come on. Uh, and we uh, had the strawberries and the champagne and we laid in bed and I brought my disc man. My little disc man. Uh, 
it had skip protection, it had bass boost, it was ready to go. <laughs> I, we inverted the, the headphones and we sat there and we listened to the song Rattled by the Rush by Pavement. So just really give you, make the story full on 90s. We're just sitting there, we're listening to it, and it's like, rattled by the rush. And I was like, well, this is a little on the nose. But we sat there, and we made out, and then she was like, let's do it. So I uh, put on the condom, put on four condoms. <laughs> you know that first time, you're like, what? It's like, it's, it's like, the first time, it's like putting in a contact lens or something. I've never done it, but you're just like, oh, is this right? now? no. <laughs> put it in, and I, well, not put it in. I, I put it on. <laughs> then I did, I put my penis inside of her vagina, and I ejaculated immediately. <laughs> I couldn't have come faster if I tried. It was electric. It's like Michelangelo and God's finger. It was just like, and I was like, no! Are you fucking kidding me? I'm gonna fucking dry clean it for six months. All I ate was Twizzlers, and I fucking came right away. She's like, it's okay, it's okay. It's her, no, this is awesome. My, our, my, our, she was like, my friend, she lost her virginity under the water tower. <laughs> the water tower in Manhattan Beach under all these power lines with a guy she didn't even like. <laughs> she was like, this is really cool. And I just felt so dumb. And I was sitting there and it would just feel so bizarre the first time. But I really thought about it. And I was like, you know, this, is, this wasn't under the water tower. <laughs> this was special. I thought this was impossible. I just thought this was not ever going to happen. But I went for it. I chose love over fear, and I worked hard, and I went for it. She became my girlfriend, all this stuff. We lost our virginities to each other. About an hour later, we went back at it, and it was fucking awesome. Because as my dad said... I didn't come to America for nothing, motherfucker. <laughs> you guys have been great. My name is Chris Garcia. Good night. I 
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Amos Lee behind me now, and we just heard from Chris Garcia, who you can find at chrisgarciacomedy.com. And if you want to see Risk live, information about where we're appearing next is always at risk-show.com slash tour. And all of the education that we do around storytelling is at thestorystudio.org. That even includes our corporate workshops. If you want to bring storytelling into your workplace, that's all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Like a virgin Touched for the very first time Like a virgin When your heart beats Next to How come you don't come out to play? Oh, What in the fuck is happening with this Easter egg? <laughs> Oregon, and now we're infested with snakes. Easter egg. Get your motherfucking hands over here right now. Get your motherfucking hands over here right now. Easter egg. I got something to say to you, boy. Hello, Easter Egg. Uh, Hello, kids. This is Risk. Uh, The show. (laughs) Hello, kids. This is Risk. Uh, The show. (laughs) Oh. Hello, Easter Egg. Won't you fade out?
I always wanted to finish you off, Easter egg. Oh, 